Wednesday night, time for Midweek Media Watch, and tonight it's the turn of Hayden Donnell in our Auckland studio. Good evening, Hayden. Good evening, Karen. We're starting with politics. Yeah, I'd like to start, if I may, with some misinformation. So this is Donald Trump talking about the spread of COVID-19 earlier this week. The Obama administration made a decision on testing that turned out to be very detrimental to what we're doing, and we undid that decision a few days ago so that the testing can take place in a much more accurate and rapid fashion. Now, the problem with that is that is completely untrue. It's completely erroneous. The Obama administration never did anything that would limit the Trump administration's ability to test for COVID-19. But you wouldn't really know that, easily at least, if you read the New York Times. It covered those comments under the headline, and I quote, criticized for coronavirus response Trump points to Obama administration. So just a straight headline. And then it leads with the sentence. The report leads with this. President Trump sought on Wednesday to deflect criticism of his administration's response to the coronavirus onto his predecessor, complaining that a federal agency decision under President Barack Obama had made it harder to quickly enact widespread testing for the virus. And it wasn't until sort of the third paragraph that the paper gently introduces this element of doubt. Hey, maybe this wasn't true. There doesn't appear to be any basis for it. And you've got a similar thing happening over at NPR, which is the national broadcaster in the US. You know, they have chosen to characterize Trump's repeated inaccurate statements about COVID-19 as him saying, quote, what's on his mind or going, quote, with his gut. And I'll read a quote from their article. It's a challenge for any politician to accurately convey public health messages. That challenge is particularly acute for Trump, given his free-flowing communication style. So the problem is that it isn't free-flowing communication. It's actually inaccurate information from a really highly influential, important source. So, yeah, the journalism, I can go on. <laughs> the journalism lecturer Jay Rosen has spent sort of a week or two talking about this type of reporting, which is called both sides journalism. And it's this belief amongst journalists and particularly political reporters that all you have to do to make a story good is you have to say what one side is saying about it, you have to say what the other side is saying about it, and then you have to just let readers decide the truth, which is usually somewhere in the middle. That's the implication anyway. So Rosen's very angry about this style of journalism. I'll go into why. You know, but Peter Baker, the person behind this New York Times article, is really chronic for this. He, in a recent interview with the Times about his process, says that he doesn't like to take a view on the truth, even in private. So around the kitchen table, it infuriates his friends and family, apparently. He doesn't like to... He likes to clear his mind and make it an oasis of calm and utter, utter blankness so that he can't decide what the truth is even in private. So what you're saying is this both-sidism or both-sides journalism never really gets to the truth? Well, that's what the problem is. That's what the criticism from people like Rosen and others are. The, the thing with both-sides journalism, what it does is that it gifts lies or extremism the same footing in an article, if, if they're said, as facts or more legitimate arguments. So I'll give an example. You're doing a story on the moon. 
one side says the moon is purple and it's made of cheese, and the other side says no, it's an interplanetary, it's a planetary object and it's uh, white. You know, and and you just quote the people that say it's purple, and you quote the people that say it's white, and that's you done. You know, the problem is that one side is telling the truth and the other isn't, and people like Baker don't really see it as their responsibility to tell readers what the truth is. So Rosen Rosen is particularly critical of this. He says that the assumption that just quoting both sides is unbiased is inaccurate in the first place. And this is what he has to say about bias. A bias is real because the original claim of objectivity to remove all bias from the news is an impossible thing. Um, journalism always has starting points. It has uh, assumptions built into it. Um, it has frames. You can't uh, unframe the facts. Um, and so when journalists started to base their authority on a claim to remove all bias from the news, they ground their authority in something that could never be. So I guess what Jay Rosen's saying there is that this both sides journalism's claim to not be biased isn't even based in fact. It doesn't even work in what it's trying to do. But the other problem is that people like Donald Trump have weaponized both sides journalism because they have to be quoted. So they can say the most outlandish thing possible. They can say an unrealistic thing and it will just be quoted alongside the often the truth as two views on the same issue. And so that allows him to push the Overton window. It allows him to sort of manipulate what people think of as the truth by pushing these more extreme views out into the media, the mainstream media in particular. Now, this has been particularly criticised during the COVID-19 crisis. So media commentator David Frumkin this week, he, he really just urged journalistic institutions to take political reporters out of reporting on COVID-19 because this tendency to not say what's right and wrong is actually really damaging when you have a public health crisis that absolutely relies on the imparting of factual information quickly and decisively. So he said, you know, this is a quote from him. For political journalists to refuse to even decide what's right and wrong is ridiculous, particularly at a time of such extraordinary asymmetry in terms of the two political parties' relationships to reality. That's referring to Republicans and Democrats. But, and he says, but when it comes to covering science, refusing to decide who's right and who's wrong is not just ridiculous, it's anathema, it is ascientific, it is the exact opposite of science. So how do we get around this? Because this trend, one assumes, is coming our way pretty soon, if For, it's not already here. Well, that's that's the interesting thing. Some people say it is actually coming to New Zealand because it's been such an effective tactic overseas. Froome can actually highlight some really good coverage of COVID-19 and of Trump's comments on COVID-19 from a mainstream media outlet. There's CNN, and they basically did the truth sandwich. You know, They said, these are false comments. They played the false comments, and then they explained why those were inaccurate. And that's sort of the best practice guideline for dealing with false comments. In New Zealand, we haven't we haven't got anything like the kind of outlandish politicians that the US does, nothing like a Trump. But the National Party has been criticised recently for its response to COVID-19. There was Hamilton East David Bennett, who went on Free FM and encouraged people to panic buy. That was covered pretty... That was put, there was a lot of pushback from the media 
on that. That was covered pretty critically, but it's quite a, an obviously inaccurate statement. There was something a little bit more of a, in a grey area that Simon Bridges did, where he actually quoted a stuff report which had some anecdotal information about hospitals not dealing with COVID-19, potential COVID-19 patients correctly. And that was criticised by the microbiologist Susie Wiles, and she said, you know, it's not right to play politics during a health crisis like this. We should be just trying to get in decisive, factual information as quickly as possible because people's lives are at stake. That's the, that's the debate here. It's not on the same level. But we have a general election coming up. And again, National has been criticised recently over its ads on the government's fee-bate scheme. They were ruled misleading by the Advertising Standards Agency. Some people have said, oh, this is the coming of post-truth truth politics and maybe maybe there's this idea here that we're going to test the waters and put out sort of inaccurate statements and see how the media reports them and whether they do fact check them whether they do point out false claims openly or whether they practice both sides journalism now this is uh going to be i guess something that's got more more attention on it in the coming months uh, but I guess the, the old journalism adage is the one that maybe we should stick to. And it says, you know, if someone says it's raining and another person says it's dry, it's not your job to quote them both. Your job is to look out the window. <laughs> right. Post-truth journalism, perhaps. Yes. Yes, that's, that's, the, that's the worry. So which of the 10 New Zealanders are you, Hayden? <laughs> this, is, this is a story about our, our, our employer, Radio New Zealand. So they had to release a few documents under the OIA yesterday, and they were into their plans for to shunt Concert FM onto AM radio and to put a youth station in Concert FM's band on FM radio. They mostly sort of just said stuff that we kind of already knew. You know, the board of RNZ didn't, or the bosses of RNZ didn't have confidence in Concert FM. They thought it was underperforming, that a lot of its audience was duplicating RNZ's audience and at a high cost per audience member. They originally, this is interesting, they wanted to float, they wanted to take it off radio entirely before they found the solution of putting it on AM. But the part of the document dump that's caught most people's attention is some market research carried out by Colmar Brunton, and it boils the entire New Zealand audience down to 10 categories, and they include stuff like the tell-it-like-it-is sports fan, the go-getter, the globalist, and the curious intellectuals. So do you, do you want to find out which one you are, Karen? You can find out. Yes, I've had a look at these 10. Mm. I can't find myself in there, Hayden. Are you not a grazer? <laughs> a curious grazer? Uh, uh, Community-minded, relaxed and unwind, a social connector. I'm not that. A globalist. I, I guess we're all some of these things some of the time. Well, you have to be one of the 10 because there's very precise audience numbers attached to each of the 10. If you can't find yourself, maybe you are unengaged. So, I mean, the, 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 a With lot of... what? <laughs> with just, whom? It's, it's one of the categories that we have here. Unengaged. Life? I'm yep. unengaged with life. You could be. You could be. So, I mean, a lot of social media today has just been devoted to people. An unengaged one's a guy, though. It's a man. You can be a, an unengaged woman as well. That's absolutely possible. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of social media today has been just people ta- tagging themselves and, and finding out which which of the 10 New Zealanders they are. I'm not 100% sure what I am. I'm probably a, a, a company seeker. Uh, but I... I the, the comedian Tim, Tim Bat, 
has actually written for Metro about the 10, about the 10 New Zealanders, and he's given them his own sort of descriptions, and some of them are really quite good. The Tell It Like It Is sports fan is someone who has very definite opinions on immigration. <laughs> if you see the picture of the Tell It Like It Is sports fan... You'd agree. You, you could see where he's coming from. The globalist is a person who finds themselves between lagers, wondering aloud if men are really copping it a bit unfairly in this Me Too era. <laughs> That's a bit lightweight for the globalist, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, the go-getter. The go-getter. The globalist. Yeah, well... I think the globalist maybe gets an unfair rap there, given that they are the they're a high they're a high media consumer. The go getter, you are the most feared entity at a barbecue or house party. You ignore social you, you ignore subtle social cues like it's an Olympic event. Have an Instagram account riddled with shirtless beach selfies and are admittedly doing pretty well at Vodafone. Everyone is sick of you bringing up Bitcoin. This is Tim Bats definitions of these guys but oh, they, i thought you were reading off the document. there was a there wasn't the document <laughs> the thing is they do come quite distressingly close to the document at times so for instance the the tell it like it is sports fan in the document is actually described as someone who this is very euphemistic but someone who wants to hear it straight up from presenters who aren't afraid to say what they think brackets because they don't worry about offending people so I think that's that's probably a euphemism for talk back. <laughs> yeah, talk, <laughs> right. talk back and potentially quite offensive talk back. Speaking of which, on that subject, <laughs> yes. So the next the next thing I want to talk about is just a really weird moment from Kerry McIver. Now I don't know if you've seen this story, but the NRL players Corey Hadawira Naida and Jaden Ockenbore they were suspended this week after it emerged that at least one of them had met a schoolgirl during a team visit to a school and brought her back to his hotel room. And the other one also had sex with a schoolgirl. And they've been uh, suspended for the first week at least. Uh, it's been quite a big controversy, but Kerry McIver didn't see it that way. She says this. There are no reports of these schoolgirls being dragged by the hair, kicking and screaming back to the hotel. There are no reports of the girls being unduly coerced by the players. So where's the scandal? They're over the age of consent. They met when the Bulldogs were visiting a local school. So they're schoolgirls. Is that the scandal? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. The answer is yes to that question. So th th it sort of brings to mind a 2010 column that I completely forgot about that the McIver wrote for the Herald. And it just hits on very similar themes. I'll read a quote from it. So, I'm of a mind that if women head out on the town with the purpose of being shagged by a sportsman, then they must bear some responsibility for their actions. Treating all women as victims infantilizes them. If women want sexual freedom, they must accept sexual responsibility. And this bit. Alcoholic comas, unwanted sex and remorse are occupational hazards for trollops out on the prowl. Just this well, is, what is uh, unwanted sex? This is 10 years ago, I, I want to point out, but another word for unwanted sex is rape. I find it bizarre that that got published in the Herald. She does say something similar at the end of her News Talk ZB monologue. She says, you know, women can't have it both ways. They can't be sort of free to do their own thing sexually and then complain that they're victims when something like this happens. But... You'd think that in this 
case where these NRL players have gone to a school as part of their professional NRL team on a professional visit and they have used that opportunity to pick up school girls, then that is something that the NRL can definitely draw a line on, even if it was legal. Maybe they were over the age of consent. They were 17, apparently. It's something that the NRL can have higher standards about than the law. And that position of power is something that they have arguably exploited and it's a line that the NRL wouldn't want to cross. Even, even, if, even if they think that they acted inappropriately, that is, that is something that you want to be completely black and white about because the NRL has a pretty long history of pretty bad off-field behaviour. And did you listen any longer and find out what the Tell It Like It Is sports fan had to say in response to that? Apparently they do not agree with me on this one and they are probably more with Kerry. That's, that's the reports that I'm hearing. Well, let's get to what's coming up this weekend. And it's going to be a difficult weekend because we started this um, report with the COVID-19 and we're being asked to stay away from big gatherings. And one is Mm. a commemoration for March 15. And that's your next topic. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't actually considered that angle that maybe this is actually a little bit ill-advised. But I just wanted to talk about a couple of things with the commemoration because there's some reports that have caught my eye. And so the first was, well, actually the second. The second one was on Monday, and it was an article by Stuff, and it was telling the story of of a woman who just wanted to go by the name Mulkey, and she survived the March 15 terror attacks. It's a really moving story. I noticed, though, that the source for this story was a website, oneyearon.org, and it's actually something that uh, Christchurch mosques have put together to tell the stories of the shooting survivors, and I guess it's in an anticipation of this sort of deluge of media requests that they're going to get from international and national media for survivor stories one year on. And the website seems to be an attempt to distance these survivors from media organisations. It tries to get them to not contact survivors directly, but to go through just this website and it offers them up uh, resources like this. And it's, I guess it's, it's a sign of a little bit of maybe discomfort from the survivors of the shooting, March 15 shooting, towards the media attention that they're getting and also possibly towards the one-year commemoration. So another... Very, very difficult for them to have to verbalise something that it would be easier, one assumes, if easy is the right term, to be able to put it down in that format, wouldn't it? Yeah, and absolutely. And these kind of events where all of the media is concentrated into a certain just... Uh, Pin, pinpoint can be really difficult, I guess, for a survivor. I wouldn't be able to relate or, or, or know what they're going through, but I can understand that they would want to ease the pressure on them a little bit. But the the other aspect of this is that apparently it's not necessarily in Islamic culture to do these kind of one-year commemorations. So last month, the Christchurch Star ran an interview with the Otago Muslim Association president, Mohammed Rizwan, and he said that maybe some of the families are a little bit unhappy with the commemoration service set to take place on the anniversary because it's not typical to mark anniversaries in Islamic culture. And he said, we remember every day what has happened and pray for those that lost their lives. We do not need a fixed day to remember them. And so the Canterbury Muslim Association backed that up. They, they said that many of its 
members just want to move on with their lives, but they understand that many others uh, may want a memorial. So their quote is, we are okay with it in the sense that this is what the rest of New Zealand wants, but personally, as Muslims, it's not something we have. I just thought that was a really important thing to bring up, that maybe these one-year commemorations where we focus our attention on this horrific event is something that the media or politicians immediately jump to, but it's not necessarily the way it's practiced in every religion or every culture. That's a very good point, and thank you for making it very poignant. Thanks, Hayden, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks so much for having me.